Hello and welcome to Work Interrupted, a podcast looking at work life after COVID and asking what next. I'm Christina Patterson and I'm talking to people from a wide range of working backgrounds to find out how their own work is changing in the light of current challenges, what they think will happen to the work landscape and how we can make work work better for each other and for us. Today I'm delighted to welcome Anne Gallagher, Professor of Ethics and Care at the International Care Ethics Observatory at the University of Surrey, and author of a wonderful new book, Slow Ethics and the Art of Care. Anne trained as a nurse during the Troubles in Belfast and worked in nursing for some years before doing a degree in philosophy and health studies and then moving into academia. We met on a panel when I'd done a huge campaign in The Independent essentially slagging off nursing care in this country, which was certainly interesting. In this conversation, recorded at the end of lockdown, she talks about the joy of nursing in spite of the challenges, the heroism of care workers during COVID, the creativity of academics, and how an art exhibition in Stockholm inspired a new vision for the future of care. And I'm thrilled to have you on my podcast. And you've devoted your entire professional life to the art of care, either to the practice of it or the research or to research on it, or to teaching other people how to do it. What did it feel like to know that so many people living and working in care were essentially living through a nightmare? Alarming. Um, but also, I suppose I have great um, faith in our caregivers and in our care services. I think we are very lucky, despite its limitations, to have a national health service in the UK. It took a while to realize what it actually meant. And as you know, some aspects of our health and social care service emerged quite late, for example, attention to care homes too late. I mean, very soon after uh, it became clear that we had to move very, very quickly to increase, for example, ICU capacity. As you remember, in the early days, there was, there was a lot of discussion about um, resources and, and anxiety about limited resources, not having enough intensive care beds, not having enough ventilators, not having enough expert staff, including, of course, ICU nurses to um, care for patients in, in ICU. And then in the the university, fairly soon after, the university that I work for um, developed what would be called a surge program. So I volunteered to help with it. And that felt really great because after lockdown, many of us were at home feeling rather helpless and wanting to be more useful. Many of many of my colleagues, some some had retired, they were volunteering to go back and help. And if you as you know, the Excel Hospital and many other areas had um, very large capacity for beds. And of course those beds need uh, caregivers, experts, um, nurses, doctors and other professionals. So fairly soon uh, I was then involved in the surge program at the university and that felt very meaningful and real and of course I then came to become aware of a wide range of emotions and responses of of caregivers who were mostly volunteering to work in other areas to care for COVID-19 patients. Mm. I mean some of those colleagues if they'd retired you know they, they would not have been spring chickens and as we know the <laughs> risk goes up the older you are and as we also know there were massive challenges stroke problems 
with in getting PPE, both in the NHS and in the care sector. Did many of your former colleagues, do you think they felt personally at risk? And how do you think they kind of juggled that sense of personal risk with a sense of duty and desire to serve at this time? I think... um... People were very thoughtful. I mean, on the whole, I, you know, I find my colleagues are very generous and they have a very strong sense of their duty to care and not to abandon anyone in need. I mean, very quickly, um, people will recall that there, there was an awareness that colleagues from Black, Asian, minority, ethnic backgrounds were more vulnerable. And of course, some of those early deaths of nurses, doctors and other professionals were just unbearably tragic Mm. um, people who were given everything but on the whole I mean this continues to be debated about um, healthcare professionals duty to care during in in these global emergencies and at great personal risk to themselves oftentimes I didn't sense any um, holding back people wanted to do their best as I said I did have colleagues who had retired of colleagues who worked in education a long time who absolutely put themselves on lists to to um, to work in the NHS as in, and when that was required. Many of them, it seemed, thankfully, thankfully, that wasn't required. You mentioned the uh, voluntary work that you've been doing. Could you tell me a bit more about that? Well, it, I mean, effectively, it's part of my job, but I, I did volunteer. I wasn't. It, so, so the mm-hmm. University of Surrey, we ran three-day surge programs, and this is for uh, colleagues in health and social care who would not be accustomed to caring for people. Uh, Certainly no one has been accustomed to caring for patients with COVID-19 and they have many challenging symptoms and and new ways of of caring for them. Um, So the three-day program was designed to enable um, colleagues to feel more competent and competent in delivering care to patients with COVID-19. So um, we we had colleagues, for example, from mental health. Now, whilst they were very expert in caring for the mental health needs of their uh, care recipients, service users, they felt less confident in caring for physical needs or in responding to the symptoms of COVID-19. And it was really admirable. Many of these colleagues were so committed and so impressive. Uh, They wanted to do their very best. And as far as possible, they wanted to keep their uh, care recipient service users in their own area and not have them transported to hospital unless that was absolutely Mm. necessary. So they were all, it seemed to me in my experience, committed, dedicated, uh, wanting to do their very best to give the very very best possible care to the the people in their areas. Mm. And apart from doing that, how has your own work situation changed during the pandemic? Well, we're uh, the, the university is for the most part closed. Clearly, it was uh, my um, school is health sciences, so we we did run face to face courses, surge courses. But most of my colleagues have been at home. Um, so a lot has changed. I mean, university life has uh, changed beyond recognition. Um, people are now uh, delivering education online, um, planning ahead for the autumn. And, and the context for all of us in health and social care and in higher education is one of uncertainty and unpredictability, but also flexibility. Uh, people are being very innovative and creative. So I think some good things have come from that. So education being delivered much more creatively, as I said, 
said, much more online provision. We, we ourselves have been running out um, a massive open online course on ethical decision making, uh, including in relation to some of the pandemic ethics issues. Um, in terms of care in our students, uh, we plan to go back in September. We, we educate nurses, midwives, paramedics, um, and they require also clinical skills. So whilst we can do a lot online, some of the our education educational provision needs um, uh, skills and we need to have some face-to-face. And I should say for the face-to-face sessions, we have been socially distancing and it, it felt quite safe. So I think overall, uh, just as a context of much more creativity, innovation and commitment, and I have absolutely, without exception, seen people just so willing to step up and to do their very best. So in terms of a spirit of solidarity, I think we've seen this in the general population. Uh, I feel very proud also when I see colleagues in uh, higher education and indeed in the NHS and in social care just do their utmost to serve um, those who require care. Mm. Has it been, I mean, to, to basically turn, put an entire degree uh, online, or at least a, a term of it, suddenly, just like that, and go into an entirely new way of teaching people, that must have been an enormous amount of work. How, how was it? And how did you, was it tiring to do things completely differently? Uh, yes, it was a great deal of, of work. Um, I mean, my colleagues I do less undergraduate uh, teaching and I know my colleagues have been working flat out to provide for students and meet their needs they there are clearly professional competencies that that must be met and people have been very creative for example bringing some um, uh, modules courses forwards with a view to then some of the students having practice experience a little bit later uh, and, and that is an interesting tension as well about clearly meeting the educational needs of our students keeping them safe and also just being mindful that we don't want to overburden uh, the NHS. So mm. clearly we, we want to be helpful. So that was just quite and of course my head of school was very, very engaged in conversations about risk and uh, I suppose the balance between benefits and burdens uh, for the students and, and for the NHS more generally. Mm. And we don't, uh, we're just at the point when lockdown is being relaxed and everybody can go to the pub, which I certainly will not be rushing to do, much though I love pubs. <laughs> but, um, um, I, I mean, as you've already said, that it's it's very difficult to, well, you, there's so much uncertainty about the future, but how are you managing with that uncertainty in terms of planning? I and mean, you've said that some of it will be socially distanced in the actual classroom. I presume some of it will continue to be online, will it be? Yes, uh, yes, absolutely, uh, Christina. The the current uh, label is we're talking about hybrid education. Uh, And clearly that suggests a good deal of flexibility, um, adaptability. So clearly we can do a lot online. And as I said, I was very pleased that we already had a a MOOC developed uh, that we can now um, use with our undergraduate students. so, yeah, flexibility, adaptability, commitment, um, professionalism, um, and also, of course, our research, everything has changed because in the, uh, until relatively recently, we would go into hospitals and care homes and conduct interviews and do observations. Mm-hmm. And of course, that hasn't been possible. So I've talked about education, I've talked about care, but the other piece is research. And in fact, just today, I've been working on a, a bid 
uh, with eight countries um, to explore the experiences of ICU nurses during the pandemic. And we're working with colleagues in Brazil, China, Italy, and so on. So I think... um, I mean, I've all well, I've been very inclined towards international research, but I think in terms of again solidarity and learning from each other, this pandemic has definitely emphasised that need that we need to continue to engage with colleagues and learn from colleagues in other, in other cultural contexts. Mm. And um, I mean, I, it sounds as though quite a lot of what you've done has turned out to be surprisingly positive. This hybrid model. If a vaccine were miraculously invented and distributed to the entire world in the autumn or whenever, how much of that hybrid model do you think would continue in your teaching and research? I hope it it will. I mean, there is a, a body of, of um, evidence that, uh, for example, lectures face-to-face teaching and in the sort of more conservative traditional form of higher education is is not so effective and we need to be much more varied in our provision so i'm hoping that as we move forward and yes hopefully post uh, vaccine uh, we will continue to be more innovative and creative and engage more with different learning styles with different students i mean our students are are, are not like us our students are so um, what would I say, au fait with technology and very comfortable with social media. And there are so many differences. And we, we you know, clearly, this is a moment when we have had to change. And I think that's a good thing. So I hope the innovation, the creativity, the flexibility, the different kinds of provision will continue. Mm. Now, I find it hilarious that your book is called Slow Ethics in the Art of Care because you are, <laughs> we talked about this before, you're one of the most productive, fast and in some ways impatient people I've met. And I mean that in a complimentary way. I know that you and I have talked about our mutual hatred of mindfulness, for example, <laughs> when we've talked about resilience. And you're incredibly hardworking and productive. Uh, you write, you teach, you research, you sit on committees, you edit the International Journal nursing ethics what's your secret for effective time management hmm I think I'm not a secret I, I care about what I do I think I, I love what I do I'm um and clearly, I suppose there's a negative and a positive interpretation, but I, I think what I do, it has meaning for me. I find it incredibly interesting uh, and everything that I do is connected. Um, it's, it's all about ethics and care. Um, I mean, I suppose I'd want to say in, in defense of, of, of slow that it's not just about speed. I think it's a commentary mm. on many of the issues. In fact, that we're seeing also during the pandemic, uh, you know, the start, uh, the starting point, the epiphany for that book was around the Francis report and the, the midst of appalling and neglect uh, of patients that, as we, as you will recall, resulted in at least you know, over 400 deaths, unnecessary mm. deaths due to lack of care. And of course, after that, there was a rush, there was moral panic, there was knee-jerk reaction, we want to do something, we want to do it quick. And there was too little thought given to sustainability, too little thought given to what had happened before. There was a forgetfulness, there was a lack of willingness 
to engage with previous scholarship and research. And in fact, we've seen some of the same trends with the pandemic also. Um, you know, have we learned from SARS and, and various other pandemics? Mm. I say not enough. Will we learn from this? My goodness, I hope we will. So I think there are many, um, I mean, I know you asked a personal question about my ability to cope, I mean, or to manage. Um, I guess the, the key thing is I really care about what I do. I feel very privileged mm. to do the work I do. Um, and it has meaning and it still has, it's still full of um, novelty and um, new ideas and, and new approaches. And, and I get to work with fantastic people around the world yeah. who are also very committed to the delivery of good care. And I feel very, very fortunate to do that. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the Francis Report because that, of course, is how we met. We were on a panel <laughs> talking about compassion. And um, and as you know, I'd had uh, some quite alarming experiences of the lack of it. And I'd made a vow on my hospital bed 10 years ago, actually, when I was having um, a major operation for cancer. Uh, to do something about it. So I did um, a big investigation on the state of nursing and uh, was subsequently, I imagine, not exactly nurse's best friend for a while, <laughs> although you were very, very nice to me. <laughs> but, um, and in fact, on the day that the Francis report came out, I presented a little film for the one show on BBC One um, about uh, my experience of nursing and what had gone wrong. But I do remember that when we were on that panel, it was about compassion. And I remember, I, I think I remember you saying that it's not all about compassion. And I think at the time I had, I mean, I, I did, you know, lots of, lots of interviews with lots of different people, but lots of people were calling for compassion. And of course, ethics is much more complicated than that. Virtue is made up of a number of different um, qualities and compassion is only one of them. Justice, for example, is another one. Yes, and um, and you've devoted your you know, much of your professional and academic career to the study of ethics. Can you tell me where that um, sort of hunger for an ethical dimension started? You tell a little story in your book, which I'd, I'd love it if you could tell now about uh, your religious childhood. <laughs> uh, yes, um... And it is, it is interesting how the personal and professional then uh, come to um, interrelate. So I come from a rural uh, community in, in Donegal. And um, I suppose the starting point, the story I tell, yeah, so, so I come from a, a Catholic background. And the story I, one of the first stories in the book I tell is, is going to confession when I was seven. And that's what everyone did. And uh, I used to... Well, I like to think I've always been fairly thoughtful, even at, at age seven. So we go to confession at seven and we're, uh, it's required that we share our sins with a priest. And I do recall going and thinking, mm, oh, you know, what, what do I have to tell? So there was a sort of a mantra of, you know, I was, I was uh, maybe not completely truthful. I was dishonorable to a parent. And then I realized that I had to say something. And if I had to make it up, then that would be untruthful and that would be a lie. So the point is that I realized early on that the moral life is very complicated. And I then went to Belfast and... Um, was there during the Troubles. And that was also very, very interesting and very formative. I was there during a clearly sectarian conflict. And actually at that time, ethics was not on the curriculum. So from a very early stage, I had wondered about free will determinism. Why is it that people do the right thing? Why do some people do the wrong thing? So I suppose those questions and that curiosity, I think it's the word curiosity. And then I've just had a number of very formative 
experiences and, and you know working with amazing people who made me uh, reflect some more and then I realized that what I needed to do was to do a degree in philosophy and I did a degree in philosophy and health studies and then discovered applied ethics and although I absolutely do not have all the answers I certainly have better ways to think about it and and to come back to that um, that panel that we worked together I mean like yourself I didn't think we would get along because <laughs> I knew your work and I was like mm, my goodness we're not, we're going to clash but we get on beautifully because we realized we had a lot in common we cared about the same sorts of things we cared about care um, and I suppose uh, I am as interested in understanding uh, well both uh, ethical care and unethical care I think it's it's impossible to be interested in ethics and not to be concerned curious about unethical care I want to know why it happens and I suppose uh over you know, a relatively long career, I realized also that's complicated. And there are individual factors, there are organizational factors, and there are wider culture and political issues mm. that impact on care for better or worse. Mm. Uh, we also bonded over bad dates, but we won't go there now. <laughs> <laughs> bad dates <laughs> and men. <laughs> but, to go, but to go back to the troubles, I mean, that was it. Troubles are really a euphemism for a civil war because, you know, as you say in your book, more than three and a half thousand people died, a hundred thousand people suffered physical disability, half a million experienced loss, bereavement, or trauma. It was a bloody time. What on earth made you decide to become a nurse in that context? It's, I mean, there, I mean, I suppose our, our lives, our careers are a series of, in a way, fortuitous events, if indeed we could think like that in terms of where we arrive. Uh, I mean, I, I became a nurse because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I'd always loved the arts and drama and so on. So I did think about doing a degree in literature. And then, you know, I come from a working class background. I had an aunt who was a nurse. And when I was uh, a teenager, actually, I'd I'd worked in a care home in Dublin. And uh, so I had a taste of that and I realized I could do it. So basically, I applied for two two uh, nurse, ed- nurse education programs. One was in Dublin and one was in Belfast and Belfast came up first. So I, and mm. it had a very, the Royal Victoria Hospital in Belfast has a fantastic reputation for trauma and it was on the Falls Road. It was between the Falls Road and the Donegal Road. So I rather, to be quite honest, Christina, and I hadn't given it a lot of thought. I thought, okay, that comes up first. I'm quite, you know, my usual, I'm quite keen to get on. So let's go to Belfast. Yeah. And and there I was, you know, 19. And, um, and it's surprising, you know, I was amongst other mostly young women. We had a really lovely time. We had a lot of fun, even though there was a lot of bleak happenings around us Um, and I guess resilient I mean that's why I'm very and I do have to be careful because I do I consider myself very resilient and I think we need to focus more on resilience than say moral distress because I think on the whole Mm -hmm. uh, most people have it in them to cope and to be resilient and, and we need to understand how that is and actually support that rather than focus on frailty vulnerability and so on mm. so but I do have to be careful because I come from as you can tell you know as I'm saying a very particular background but I mean Belfast was was an amazing experience I learned a huge amount was hugely humbled by the people I work with and also a lot of sadness you know I remember working in intensive care when I was I think a second year student nurse and I was put to work with a young woman same same age as myself 1920 
and uh, she'd been shot in the back of the neck and coming from mm-hmm. Sunday school, just a, an innocent person, a different religion to me. Um, that didn't matter. And I witnessed at first hand her family's sadness and trauma. And I went home to Donegal uh, for the weekend and, and just heard that she died. And it was mm-hmm. it was heartbreaking. And it just it makes it makes it made no sense. But I suppose as a positive thing that I hope I bring out in the book is that I saw even there, even there in that dark time uh, people delivered amazing care and people benefited from that care and that's why I think what we do is so critically important and I would absolutely hope and recommend that the brightest and the best of our young people would um, sign up to work in health and social care because we need we need the best people to do that Mm. most important work. Mm. Um, It's the 200th anniversary of the birth of Florence Nightingale. Uh, She was a strong believer in nursing as a vocation, but this seems to be frowned on now. What's your view on that? That's interesting. And you are right. It's uh, considered... maybe a little bit old-fashioned now to talk about vocation and and some people equate it with a particular religious approach. Um, I mean, we talk about nursing as a profession, profession now. Some people talk of it as a semi-profession. I think um, I don't have such difficulty with the word, I must say, but I because I think what it suggests is commitment. I mean, nursing is not just a job. It is something that requires much more of people than... Um, because it's about engagement with with other humans in a very meaningful and and deep way on the whole. Um, I think probably our young people, that wouldn't be such a big seller if we began to talk about nursing as a vocation, because it, I suppose it does suggest a certain, um, how can I say, maybe historically um, conservative approach and you know, in Florence Nightingale's day, she she was she was a very comf- she came from privilege, um, and many many people at that time, and mostly women, of course, nursing is still mostly women, but we do have more men. Um, I suppose at that time it was a vacation, and that most women who um, signed up for nursing would have been single women; they wouldn't have had families. I think we need to also, of course, allow that that people are well-rounded, they have families, they have partners, they have children. Um, So I think, although I personally don't have such difficulty with the word, I think probably talking about nursing as a profession is much more contemporary, much more helpful. And the critical question is to ask ourselves, what is it that we profess? And I think to come back to your earlier point about the virtues and compassion, I think we ought to and do and should profess ethical care. And it is more than compassionate care. It's it's about social Mm. justice. It's about being courageous. It's about having integrity. Um, So it's a big ask. I I remember I I gave a talk at the Hastings Centre some years ago and about ethics education. And one of the philosophers said, you know, excuse me, isn't this asking too much? We, we don't reward nurses in particular very well. We don't certainly not care assistants, for example, in residential care homes who are doing this critical work during the pandemic in particular. I mean, as you probably know, 
some colleagues in in um, residential care have moved into the care homes to keep mm. their older people. I mean, that's just awesome. Incredible. It's so yeah. incredible. Absolutely. And those colleagues are paid so little. Mm-hmm. Uh, many, many years ago, I, I wrote a piece for The Guardian on, on carism which I described as a sort of a discrimination against care workers. You know, they're not sufficiently respected. They're not sufficiently Mm. rewarded. And of course, we've had clap for carers, which is fantastic. But the focus, again, was on the NHS. It was Mm. a few Thursday evenings, and that's great. But I think what we want is acknowledge and recognition into the long term, something that's more sustainable. Um, And I think we really need to ask that question that uh, John Tronto asks about you know what is what is the most important work, and and how do we how does society recognise that? And sadly, it doesn't recognise it enough. So, one thing I hope uh, after this pandemic, and I hope there will be an after this pandemic, uh, is that we won't forget we won't forget the awesome work that caregivers give in the NHS and in social care, and of mm-hmm. course globally, and that that will be recognised by politicians and policymakers uh, into the long term. Our whole care system is based on people being paid less than supermarket workers because if you pay them more you won't get the contracts from local authorities or whatever because you have to be competitive because it's a market and politicians have been talking for years about integrating or at least commissions have been talking for years about integrating health and social care and they haven't done it because it's just too darn expensive because Mm -hmm. to give people proper rights and security and paid holiday and pay um is just too expensive, according to the system as it currently exists. Do you think that will change, can change? What would make that change? Political will, I guess. Mm. We need the right people in leadership. We need the right people, the people who have integrity and who are committed to the right things in our society. People who are honest. Um, People who don't... um, you mean, there are so many things. You mentioned testing. There's also the issue about the availability of PPE. Mm. And I mean, I'm so, not that you, we can all feel somewhat powerless. I, I mean, it can only hope that going forward uh, that we will be better prepared next time. I think political will, the right leadership, leader, leaders with integrity, people who are not um, disingenuous, people who move beyond self-interest. I mean, we have some fine examples, it seems, from around the world. And interesting, some of the countries, I think, who've done best have female leaders. And I suppose this is another, I mean, clearly I'm, I'm very keen to have of, of the, you know, the, the best young people uh, devoting their lives to care, but we need them to devote their lives to politics. We need people to get mm. more involved. And it's so easy to be disenchanted and disillusioned. And there's been so much during this pandemic that clearly has, oh, it can just leave people feeling very... Mm, Uh, gloomy I guess for want of a better word Um, because we've seen how things could be done so much better and of course you know Mm -hmm. offers uh, the European offer early on to work with Britain to get more PP that was rejected as far as I know there there were were efforts of solidarity global solidarity that sadly not all countries including our own were willing Mm -hmm. to, to take up so yeah I think political leadership is critical um, and I guess we need a better informed um, population. And, you know, people vote 
for our mm. politicians and that's that's a challenge and uh, again it's about moving beyond self-interest I mean if there's anything there's many good things uh, clearly mo- mostly not good things but at least some good things from this and that is what we've seen is much we've seen compliance now a lot of that was about self um, self-interest you might say but I think a lot of it was also about concern for others. And as I said near the beginning, uh, we all now are aware that ethics is not an optional extra. We're all potential victims and vectors. We're all potential people who can harm mm. others. And I think it has been very impressive that most people have been willing to make sacrifices. And of course, we're aware there's huge inequalities and this pandemic has brought those to the fore, more domestic violence, more child abuse, poverty, many, many things of concern. So I think, you know, I personally think we have to believe in political leadership. We have to believe that there's a a better future and that our political leaders will be people who have integrity and who will be driven by the right values and have the right aims in mind. And then the next challenge is to enable uh, our um, fellow citizens uh, to vote, (laughs) to Mm. vote for uh, social justice and to vote for other things that matter in terms of uh, countering racism, ageism, sexism and and so on. Mm. And it's quite hard to if you've got very very skilled people in charge of a very simple message like uh, vote to claw back 350 million pounds for the NHS so people vote for Brexit many people did vote for Brexit because of that message Um, then you have a mountain to climb but hey there are lots of mountains to climb and uh, we have to find ways to climb them because the alternative is more of the same and more of the same as so many care workers in particular have discovered during this time just isn't good enough. I mean, I've been incandescent by the government's handling of this, particularly in relation to PPE. Um, I'm on the board of a housing association um, that provides uh, care for 80,000 people. And uh, thank goodness we have a a fantastic director of care and support who has fought tooth and nail to get uh, PPE. And we have managed to have it all the way through. But I think so many care workers must have felt betrayed, actually, and people running care homes felt betrayed because they had the basically at the the care homes were sacrificed for the NHS. You know, in order to not have the NHS overwhelmed, people were uh, the the policy was for infected patients to be released from hospitals into care homes where they then infected. They were not even tested and infected other residents and and workers. And of course, many, many thousands of people have died as a result of that. How do you think, and the people you know who work in those sectors, how have they coped with their anger about this? Because I'm angry as an observer, and I can't imagine what it feels like to be in that situation, knowing how little care and thought has been given to you. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I know the answer to that. Um, You know, as I said earlier, many have been just so impressive in the work they're doing uh, at personal cost to themselves. I'm not sure. I mean, I suppose it's keeping in mind the objective of the work, the raison d'etre of care, is to care for Mm. others and to give everything you can. Um, and clearly, there's also a, a critique of that. There's certainly a feminist critique about self-sacrifice, and of course, it's women's work, and and that's not maybe so. Um, uh, what would I say? 
that's problematic. Um, but I think how people cope is they care about what they do. They care about the people in their care. Um, and I'm not sure. I mean, hope. I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, this is an area for research. We, we've just put in a bid to compare um, uh, care home managers uh, in care of older people and learning disabilities on exactly this point. What were the issues and how did they respond and how did they cope and get through? I think there's probably a lot of muddling through. There clearly is mm. a lot of anger. We've seen this in the media, of course, of people who are tr doing their damnedest to protect people and just outrageous that people were discharged from hospital with little regard or possibly no regard for the, you know, the vulnerable communities that they were being sent back to. Um, mm. So I think definitely there would be anger, but I think mostly people get on with it. People are copers. Um, mm. But it would be tragic if we didn't learn from this and do better mm. next time. Um, mm. And as I said, keep reminding ourselves of the importance of recognising uh, these colleagues who do this just amazing work. Mm. Nurses have a different status in different countries. So do care workers for that matter. Um, the status of care workers is generally, tragically and uh, disgracefully, not very high. Uh, in, in, but for example, I think um, in Norway, it's uh, slightly higher and people are paid quite well and properly and properly trained and so on. Mm. But for example, nurses in the US are paid, I think, at least double what they earn here. And they're regarded as highly educated professionals. Yeah. What, how would you explain that huge difference in pay and status there than here? Is it to do with the private healthcare insurance or what do you think? I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but that is true. I mean, I know that to be true. Um, and the state, why is the status of nursing higher in the United States? Uh, I mean, I think education, I, I know people are very critical also about graduate nurses. And, you know, we remember early um, discussions in the media about people who are too posh to wash and, mm -hmm. and so on. I don't believe that. I think nurses do need degrees. I think education is the key to um, increasing recognition, to people having confidence, mm -hmm. to challenge. And my goodness, we, we rely on nurses that's not to say nurses can always do it, but we do rely on nurses. We, we talk about nurses as patient advocates and, you know, clearly that's a contentious idea as well. But nevertheless, oftentimes we rely on nurses and indeed other caregivers to raise concerns and to draw attention to deficits in care. That's not to say always as in indeed mid-staffs that those concerned are responded to. But nurses do need to be well-educated. Um, and indeed uh, other caregivers too. So, I mean, for example, we, we do work with Skills for Care, and that's a very impressive organisation who um, deliver a lot of um, educational and training provision to colleagues in health and social, uh, sorry, in mainly in social care. And they've been do doing amazing work during the pandemic uh, in terms of educating staff online about how they manage PPE and so on. So, um, so I think the, the, the difference in, I mean, of course, I've been to Japan as well. Again, nurses of a different status there, maybe much more mm. different and their cultural issues, um, definitely cultural issues in, in the United States as well. So I think in terms of nurses having confidence, having autonomy and gaining respect, education is part of it. And maybe there is something, Christina, I mean, I'm not quite sure, but maybe there is something about the public uh, private uh, divide. I mean, some in the United States, they have magnet hospitals, for example, they have some excellent hospitals uh, with very high status. So those nurses, if they belong there, they, they just by association also have high status. Um, mm. So I think 
I think a lot of it does come to education and, of course, our leadership as well uh, in our different countries. I mean, the Royal College of Nursing does a lot of good work as well to promote the profession. And they also now take on the interests of, of uh, other caregivers, healthcare assistants. Um, so I think education, nurse leadership, and I suppose nurses need to be at the table. And what I must say, what I've been very impressed by during this pandemic, uh, I think uh, you saw I sent you an editorial I did on the um, International Council of Nurses, and they've been working very closely with the World Health Organization, and they published a report just in April about the state of the world's nursing. Well, that was, I mean, some... Uh, definitely a lot of uh, room for improvement. It was fantastic to see that piece of work delivered. And I think it shows that the World Health Organization rightly places the, the role and contribution of nurses at the center of, of healthcare provision globally. So I think there are definitely positive signs. Differences across countries, I think, can be explained by, by culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, clearly, historically, nursing and medicine, you know, the, in, the, in the olden days, uh, nurses were much more subservient. They didn't have so much autonomy. They were considered the eyes and ears of the doctor. Well, now nurses are very well educated. Many nurses have PhDs and they're clinical mm-hmm. specialists. Many patients now see nurses actually instead of doctors. Um, mm-hmm. So the profession is moving forward, always definitely uh, more progress to be made. And I think it, it is a global issue. Mm-hmm. Now, you've just published a wonderful book, Slow Ethics and the Art of Care, which I'm sure will be a classic in the field of care. Can you tell me a bit about the genesis of it? The genesis, it it, it started... um with an epiphany in in 2013 i was at a an exhibition in stockholm on slow art and it was again the time of the francis report and the uk was reeling and we were all very um gloomy depressed i wouldn't say depressed but Shocked. No, let's say shocked. We were very shocked uh, at the Francis report that so many patients could have died, so many patients could have been neglected, so many patients did not have the care they deserved and needed. Uh, So the Francis report was a shock. And in the UK, it generated a lot of moral panic. Uh, people began to simplify things. Oh, of course, it's about a you know a deficit in compassion, um, and and of course they they put a lot of this at the um, in a way responsibility of nurses and those of us who've been working in care and nurse education for a long time were really just so taken aback and wonder how could this have happened? Why did it happen? Uh, so when I went to Stockholm, the media was was very, very um, uh, prolific. Uh, there were lots of articles about the c- compassion deficit, compassion crisis, compassion fatigue, um, and a lot of moral panic. And then there was moves to roll out compassion training, a lot of knee-jerk, quick responses. And, and when I was at this exhibition, I was reading the the material uh, relating to these fine exhibits, these beautiful pieces of art, um, including there was uh, eggshells threaded through with gold thread. Uh, Mm. They were just incredibly beautiful. But it was the text, it was the narrative around slow art that really um, impressed me. And as I said, I did have an epiphany because I thought this relates to ethics as well as to art and aesthetics. So the the narrative was about um, quality over quantity, sustainability, taking time to do things well, uh, learning uh, from others, 
and so on. And it just seems such a good fit. Uh, and of course, then I, I came, as I, as I say in the book, I rushed back to the UK, <laughs> ordered all the books <laughs> I could on the slow movement um, and uh, read. And it was just enthralling. It was so, so very interesting to read about the slow movement, uh, the slow food movement uh, in the 1980s in Italy. And then we had a slow travel with slow medicine um, and and so on, so slow cities. So the the philosophical background, I, I was so taken by this, and I thought this has such resonance with our time in relation to care scandals. And so that was the moment, that was the epiphany. And then I was very fortunate to have a sabbatical, a nine-month sabbatical, and I had a Fulbright at um, Tuskegee in Alabama. So I was based in a historically black university for nearly three months. And it was just amazing. I learned I learned so much about different cultures. And I suppose I came to conclude that understanding unethical practice um, generally, it's, you know, we realize it's complicated. We need to draw on different disciplines. And basically, knee-jerk quick responses just will not do. We need to assume a much slower, more sustainable approach. And then I arrived at... Um, the importance of, of, of different, I could talk about six S's of, of considering the importance of sensitivity. And that's critical to all ethical practice that we're sensitive to the needs, the needs of others, and we're not morally blind. Um, and also solidarity. So that's been much discussed during this pandemic. It's a very important value globally. And also the importance of stories. And I suppose, I mean, you yourself, Christina, I remember at the um, the Barbican event and, and since then you've we have been very pleased to have you come and speak to our students telling your story. Stories are incredibly powerful. So my slow ethics uh, stories have a very important uh, part in that. And Arthur Frank talks about the role of stories in, in changing people, the impact um, people and, and and we might argue that it increases empathy and so on I'm hoping that the stories in my book will as I say show not tell well they do they do it's a beautiful book and if anyone is planning to is considering a career in nursing care or healthcare or medicine I would strongly recommend that that they read it because um, everything in our society is too fast and uh, we do need, we only do things well if we reflect on them. And your book is a, a beautiful way of doing that. I'm going to end by asking, you've said some of the things you hope will happen, come out of this pandemic in terms of um, the role of health, uh, health and care workers in our society and uh, status and respect and just encouraging people into that whole world really but I and as we know the many jobs and industries will be threatened by this pandemic um, and also by the rise of the robot and AI but our need for care will only grow not least because the world has an aging population and we assume that uh, COVID-19 isn't going to kill everybody off so what would you say to someone considering a career in care? I'd say they'll never regret it. I mean, I think the rewards and the privileges of being a caregiver are uh, unquantifiable. I mean, there's so there is a place for everyone. I suppose the starting point is people do have to care about other humans, and um, mm -hmm. 
But I think there are tremendous opportunities, and and you, you are right at this time. People will be thinking about maybe other career options. And I, you know, I spoke to a colleague recently whose husband has been made redundant, and he says he's going to consider maybe being a teacher. So I think the pandemic is encouraging people to rethink their lives and to rethink purpose and meaning. Uh, and there, you know, there are good things. I think we have a renewed appreciation of, of other humans, of the environment, and so on, and maybe of of our ethical behavior more broadly. Care has, I mean, it's such a diverse, it's a very diverse field. Um, uh, you mentioned demographic changes. We have, I mean, when the NHS was set up in 1948, as, as you, I'm sure you know, there was great optimism that, you know, the health of the nation would improve and uh, the needs, uh, the demands on the NHS would decrease. Of course, we are living longer in, in most ways. That's fantastic. And we have much more um, multi-pathology. We have many more chronic illnesses and so on. Um but I think in short, so the demand for care is increasing rather than decreasing. Um, but I think the rewards of care are phenomenal. You know, the difference you can make to someone's life by um, a, an intervention. You, you mentioned AI. There's, there's much more movement now to integrate AI and more technology into care. And I think as long as it's complementary, that can be a good thing. I would like to think that we think that a robot could replace a human caregiver, particularly in care of older adults um, or indeed any field. But I think it's it's a very exciting time to come to care. Clearly, we have we have great um, educational programs. There is much more research to engage with. But ultimately, care is relational. It's about having a relationships with with other with the care recipients, with families, with communities, and critically, it's about making a difference. I cannot imagine another field where you can make such so many differences in the course of a day in helping people to feel better and helping people to flourish. And clearly, there are sadnesses as well. Uh, people do die, and we've seen from COVID nineteen, many pa- pa- patients do die. I, I read a statistic today that of the seventeen percent of hospital admissions um, who go to intensive care unit, about forty-five percent of them will die. Mm-hmm. But I've been so greatly heartened by the stories, and in fact, there was one in in one of the editorials. Um, I, I've written recently of a, an ITU nurse in the UK just talking about how she was with patients so sometimes being with someone is just it's so critically important and especially at this time often when families aren't able to be with their loved ones so a nurse in particular just can play a very very important role in helping people to die well um, mm. but also clearly to enhance their well-being and achieve their full potential so I can't imagine uh, another area of work where the rewards are just so phenomenal mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Anne. It's been a a real delight to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, Christina. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you liked it, I'd be really grateful if you could share, rate and review it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. It really does help other people find it. Do follow me on Twitter, where I'm at QueenChristina underscore, and on Instagram, where I'm at QueenChristinaWriter. If you want to find out how I dealt with my own big work interruption, you could check out my book, The Art of Not Falling Apart, which is recommended self-isolation reading in The Guardian and The Eye. Here's to not falling apart and to doing work that works for all of us. And I hope you'll join me again next week.